This morning we come to one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story of David and Goliath. And it seems that even people who have never read the Bible are still aware of this incident from Israel's history. In fact, here's a book that's getting plenty of attention at the moment. This is not marketed as a Christian book. As far as I'm aware, the author wouldn't necessarily call himself a Christian, but he's just using the biblical story in this book. The problem is, though, once an incident gets lifted out of its original context, and once it's just floating around in people's thoughts and their hazy memories, when that happens, it often takes on a meaning that it didn't have in its original context. In the case of David and Goliath, I think most people would view this as a story about human courage. In fact, the subtitle of this book, which you probably can't read, the subtitle says, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And the moral is, little people can stand up to big people. So if you're small, either in size or in influence or resources, and you face something intimidating, you can find a way to overcome it. Just be brave and don't give up. But in its biblical context, that is not the moral of the story at all. So this morning, let's not assume that we've got this incident all figured out. Let's come to it like we're hearing it for the first time. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. In the church Bibles, that's page 288 or page 442 in the large print. Now the background to this is that in chapter 16, Samuel anointed a new king for Israel, a young boy called David. David is the youngest or the littlest in his family. And when Samuel came to David's father Jesse, Jesse didn't even bother to introduce Samuel to David. David's own father didn't think God could possibly be interested in David. But when Samuel was looking at David's older brother Eliab and assuming Eliab was the one God would choose, in that moment God said to Samuel, man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. In other words, we tend to look at people according to what we can see with our eyes. But God looks at people according to the purposes he has for them. He sees them according to his heart for them. And so, although Jesse had disregarded David, God had chosen him to be king of Israel. David was anointed in front of his family. And he then became king in waiting. Saul continues to sit on the throne of Israel. But David is God's king. That's the background to what we're about to read in chapter 17. And it will help us to understand chapter 17. I'm going to begin by reading the first 11 verses. 
Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socha and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion called Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. These verses describe the enemy. His size, his defiance, and his effect. But all of this starts not with one man, but with two armies, the Philistines and the Israelites. Back in chapter 14, we read about a significant defeat for the Philistines. They had been occupying part of Israel, but Israel had defeated them, and we were told in chapter 14, they withdrew to their own land. Well, now they're back. And they've come to fight for a strategic position. The Valley of Elah is like a gateway into Israel. If they capture it, they can flood in and spread right across Israel. So they come and they camp at Socha, which is about 15 miles west of Bethlehem. And in response, Saul assembles his army to defend the valley. Two armies are on two hills, facing each other with the valley in between. Now, so far, this is normal procedure for war. But what happens next is a new development. The Philistines take an approach that was not normal at this time. Instead of the two armies piling into the valley and fighting in a big chaotic mass, instead of that, the Philistines call for a battle of champions. A champion was a representative warrior. The idea was each army picked one man and the two guys fought to the death in the middle. The battle was decided by the result of that fight. Now the great advantage was only one man would die instead of thousands. But fighting this way was a major gamble. If your champion lost, then your whole army lost. 
And that's probably why this was not a common way to do battle. But the reason the Philistines are taking this approach is because they have a secret weapon. They have a giant in their ranks. And they're sure this is no gamble at all. Their champion is unbeatable. Goliath is a freak of nature, nine feet, nine inches tall. That's about three meters. Now, it's not completely unheard of. There was a man called R.P. Wadlow who died in 1940, who was eight feet, 11 inches tall. And at Hale, near Liverpool, there's a man buried called John Middleton. He was nine feet, three inches. And apparently skeletons 3.2 meters tall have been excavated in Palestine. So men like Goliath are not unheard of, but they don't come along very often. And because the Philistines have this beast of a man, they decide they can take Israel without losing any soldiers in battle. And they have given Goliath the best kit that money can buy. Goliath's equipment was not standard issue for Philistines. Now, obviously, it had to be bigger than anyone else's, but it was also better. He has full body armor. The only part of his body that is not covered is his face. And the weight of his armor tells us that he was not a skinny guy. He needed muscle just to move around in all this gear. One writer says he stood there like a one-man indestructible fortress. And Goliath is also pretty sure of himself. He doesn't have any self-doubt. He says in verse 8, why do you come out and line up for battle? In other words, why are you idiots even bothering to stand there? Look at me. Look at this Philistine muscle. Choose a man and let him come down to me. What he's really saying is, as if you have anyone you can choose. And Goliath's scorn for Israel comes out in verse 10. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And verse 11 says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. There's great irony in those words. Think back a few weeks. We saw Israel choosing a king for themselves. They wanted a man to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they said. And they got the tallest man in Israel. Twice we were told Saul was a head taller than anyone else in Israel. And now Goliath is shouting, choose a man. Well, Israel has chosen a man. And their man is dismayed and terrified along with everyone else. Israel's downfall is that they set their sights too low. They rejected the creator of the universe because they wanted to be led by a big man. Well, now they've got their big man, but it turns out he's not very big at all. Not compared to this champion who's standing in front of them. 
And that is always going to be the case for us too. Whenever we put our faith in something or someone other than God, eventually that thing or that person will be shown to be pretty small and pretty weak. Only God is big enough. Only God is bigger than the biggest enemy. Putting your faith in anything else is a gamble. And it will not pay off. Israel gambled on Saul. And it hasn't paid off. Now it looks stupid. But if Israel set their sights too low in the past by putting their faith in Saul, they're making the same mistake again here. They're looking at Goliath and forgetting to look at God. They're forgetting that while the enemy is big, their God is bigger. And again, how many times do we get caught up with this? Some big hulking thing casts its shadow over us, something looms large over our life, and instead of lifting our eyes higher to the God who towers over that thing, instead of doing that, we just sit around dismayed and terrified. We set our sights too low. And so the challenge for us is this, whatever is casting its shadow over your life right now, It is not bigger than God. Goliath is big. There's no denying that. And whatever you're facing might be genuinely big too. But it is not bigger than God. The Israelites have set their sights too low. They look at the man they've been trusting in, Saul... And they look at the enemy they're facing, Goliath, and they realize Saul is too small and Goliath is too big. They're paralyzed with fear. What God's people need is a man to represent them. A man to walk up to their enemy and fight their enemy in their place. But they can't see where this champion is going to come from. And it's at this point of despair for Israel that we're introduced to a challenger who sees things differently. Verse 12 begins with the words, Now David. But before we can get our hopes up, the following verses tell us David is not part of Saul's army. His three oldest brothers are. But David, God's anointed king, is carrying out his duties at home still, tending his father's sheep at Bethlehem. The Old Testament tells us that the age for being called up to the army was 20. So it seems David is not yet 20 at this point. Has God got his timing wrong? Did he miscalculate when he anointed this boy? Did he not realize that Israel needed a champion now? It's a nice idea to anoint a boy, but Goliath is here today. Israel can't wait five years for David to grow up and mature. 
They can't wait for him to go through military training. The crisis is happening now. And not only is David still a boy, he's miles away from the battle watching sheep. So what good is your king, Lord? Have you ever felt like saying that to God? You're in a situation and God just doesn't seem to have it covered. You know what he's promised to do, to be with you and be all you need. You know that, but you can't see how he's going to pull it off in your situation. He seems to have got his timing all wrong in your life. Or his geography all wrong. Or he seems to have chosen the wrong people for the job. We can feel that way about God's kingdom. How is it going to survive in this world? Well, because Israel has no champion, things drag on a bit in the Valley of Elah. We're told that every day, twice a day, for 40 days, Goliath marches out and does his macho man routine. He shows off his muscles and his shiny armor And he shouts scorn and abuse at God's people. But nothing happens because Israel has no champion. And because this is dragging on, the army needs supplies. They have to eat. Jesse decides to send some supplies to his three soldier boy sons. And he gives the job to his littlest, his shepherd boy son. And that's how it happens that one day David arrives at the battle line just in time to hear Goliath's speech. Look down to verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Those last four words change everything in this story. God's anointed king has arrived on the scene and he has heard the defiance of the enemy. I think it's significant. We're not told he saw Goliath. We're told he heard him. No doubt David did see him. How could he miss him? But it isn't the sight of Goliath that bothers David. It's what Goliath says. That's what gets a reaction out of David. And it's a very different reaction from everyone else. Look down to verse 26. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. David sees this situation very differently from everyone else. They look at Goliath and they are dismayed and terrified. David wonders who this fool is who's out there defying the armies of the living God. Israel looks at Goliath according to their eyes And they see an unbeatable champion. David looks at Goliath and he sees an uncircumcised pipsqueak. 
Who's the little speck of a human out there shaking his fist at the living God? David knows his God is alive. The rest of Israel seems to have forgotten that. So David sees this whole situation very differently from the rest of Israel. He's looking at this from God's perspective. He's seeing Goliath as God sees him. And from that perspective, Goliath's nine feet nine inches looks pretty small to David. But why does he call Goliath uncircumcised? Was that just a good insult in ancient Israel? Well, actually, it's a reference to where Goliath stands in relation to God. When God entered into a covenant with Abraham, the father of Israel, God promised that Abraham's descendants would have a special place in God's plans and God's heart. That was God's covenant, his promise. And the sign of that promise was circumcision. Every Israelite male was to be circumcised when they were eight days old. So by calling Goliath uncircumcised, David is saying, it really doesn't matter how big this guy is. It doesn't matter how snazzy his armor is. He's on the wrong side as far as God is concerned. And that means he's got no chance. He's toast. Israel has been looking at nine feet of Philistine muscle. David is looking at an infinitely powerful God. And he is remembering the promises of that infinitely powerful God. Well, it's at this point that the naysayers step in. Look at verse 28. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? We get the sense here that David has been getting grief from Eliab ever since he was anointed by Samuel. There seems to be a history of jealousy behind Eliab's words. And there's a bit of weariness from David when he says, Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? Eliab might be lined up on the Israelite side of the battle, but he's on the same team as Goliath. Eliab is opposing God's anointed king. And he knows it. Eliab saw his little brother being anointed. Well, if Eliab is scornful, Saul is just incredulous about this. Verse 30. He, that's David, then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. The man answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. 
And he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul sees just like the rest of Israel sees. He sees a powerful giant and a young boy. Only David can see how big Israel's God is. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. In case we had any misconceptions, we find out that being a shepherd involved a lot more than just strumming a guitar on a hillside. Looking after sheep was dangerous work. But it's important to see, David is not confident in his own ability here. Yes, he has overcome lions and bears. But he says it was the Lord who rescued him. Not his own strength or his own quick thinking. And David's logic is very simple. Lions, bears, Hairy Philistine giants, they're all the same in God's eyes. All equally small. Equally not a problem to my all-powerful God. So you see, it's not David's ability that makes him different here. There's no indication he had more skill than anyone else. There were 12 tribes in Israel. And the book of Judges tells us that Saul's tribe alone had 700 men who could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. So yes, we'll see in a moment, David is a crack shot with a sling. But here on the battlefield, he's probably surrounded by men who could do exactly the same thing. The problem is, they're too terrified to go out and try it. The thing that sets David apart is the way David looks at the situation. Everyone is looking at the same thing. But only David sees it as God sees it. Everyone else is seeing according to their own eyes. And I think that's the default setting for you and me too. We have to learn to look at things from God's perspective. Remember a few months ago now when we called Steve and Paula here, back in May, and we wondered at that time, well, there's so many things that could go wrong. What if they can't sell their house? That's kind of a legitimate question. Houses can sit on the market for a very long time. But at that meeting, one of you pointed out selling a house isn't a problem for God. And sure enough, the house went in the market and it sold in a week and a half. 
So name any problem, obstacle, or threat you want. It's not a problem, obstacle, or threat to our God. Now we know that in theory. But let's ask God for eyes that can truly see it. Let's ask for eyes of faith. And let's live like our God really is the living God. Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. I don't know what you're picturing in your minds at the moment. Maybe a little piece of leather with a few pebbles. But actually, the sling is a lethal weapon. And it's still used today. This photo was taken in October of this year, just a few weeks ago. It was taken near the West Bank. That's not far from where David faced Goliath. Same place, same weapon, 3,000 years later. Only these are Palestinians firing at Israeli soldiers. But you'll notice they're not using pebbles. They're using rocks as big as tennis balls. At least as big as that. And they launch these rocks from the slings at between 100 and 150 miles an hour. So just imagine an Andy Murray serve coming at you, except in Instead of a rubber ball, it's a rock. It's lethal. And remember, Goliath is in full body armor. He only has one exposed spot, his face. David is approaching him with the only weapon that can hit the exposed spot. God has figured this out perfectly. And yet to human eyes, God's solution still seems laughable. Goliath makes the same mistake Jesse made about this boy. He disregards him. In fact, Goliath is insulted that the Israelites would send a boy against him. Not only that, he can see that the Israelite champion is defenseless. What an insult to Goliath. No armor, no shield, just a few rocks in a bag. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, 
You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Notice again, David's confidence was not in his sling, nor in his ability to use his sling. David's confidence was in the power of his God. Look closely at verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is not about how courageous David is. It's about how big God is. That's what gives David his courage. And look at David's motivation in verse 46. The Lord will deliver you into my hands and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. God's anointed king is concerned first and foremost with God's honor. He wants God's enemies to fear him and God's people to trust him. And verse 50 reminds us, God won this victory through a boy without even a sword in his hand. And it immediately becomes obvious that David's victory has much wider implications. It's not just about two individuals fighting to the death. This is a victory for God's people. Their champion has won the battle for them. Verse 51, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shariam road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. Israel has won an unlikely victory. But was it really unlikely? Well, it all depends how you look at it. If you look at a defenseless boy 
taking on a giant covered in armor, then sure, it's an unlikely victory. But if you look at this through the eyes of the living God, if you realize the defenseless boy is actually God's king and the giant is God's enemy, then you can see how one-sided this was. Goliath never had a chance. There is nothing unlikely about this victory. As God's people today, we have a lot in common with these Israelites in the Valley of Elah. We face the normal giants that everybody faces. Sickness, family troubles, work troubles. And we may also face the scorn that comes from belonging to God's people. We may wonder if his church will survive. We may wonder if his will is really going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we have a champion. We have a representative who fights for us. At Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of heaven's champion. And heaven's champion went on to defeat our greatest enemy. Jesus went to face that enemy just like David. He came into the world defenseless, completely defenseless as a baby. And 33 years later, not very much had changed for Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus met his captors with no sword in his hand. He went to the cross without even a robe to cover him, never mind body armor. And today the world looks at our crucified Savior and they see only weakness and foolishness. But the reality is that on the cross, God's anointed king defeated death. And when he rose on the other side of death, it wasn't just a victory for one man. His victory is for every man and woman who trusts in him. And if our God can win a victory like that, why would we doubt his power tomorrow? Why would we doubt his power in the face of whatever lesser enemy comes along? Whatever comes against us, whatever shadow falls over our lives, our God is bigger. Our champion is bigger. And so our final song says, we trust in you, our shield and our defender. Just stand with me, please.